ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Football fans around Australia are on a high after last night's win by the Matildas. Australia beat Denmark 2-0. It's not history in the making. History has been made right to this point. Yes, we've got World Cup fever. But what lessons can we learn for our own work from the amazing gameplay the Matildas have shown, especially with Sam Kerr on the bench at the start? The similarities between sport and leadership and team play and business in the workplace are identical. Even if you aren't on the field or able to do your regular duties, you can still play a leadership role. It's just in a different format. It is much more about us and how any individual fits into that us, including the superstar, Kerr. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, we're unpacking the Matilda's effect. How can we pull together as a team and unlock the power of us to do our best work? There's nothing like hard work to actually build trust. That's Dr Shona Bass. Interim executive leader and a pioneer Matilda. Working together in in the training drills, being with each other 24-7. Everyone's excited. Everyone's got the same vision and mission about where we want to go in the tournament. And you just make it work because everyone has the same forward path. And do you have any examples of when there were was maybe behaviour which wasn't about team first. So it could be about ego or maybe not passing the ball at the right time. (laughs) And what happened in that moment when a choice was made that wasn't team first? To first up with the individual versus the team and with soccer, many instances, particularly back in the 70s and 80s, you know, you, you nearly always had one or two players that had the skill, had the flair, and often the team would put up with their individualism because that was so important to the game, to the team winning. And at times if people, if players became so more focused on their individualism rather than the the greater benefit of the team, then that would be, the team would be brought forward, brought in together, have the conversation, you know, identify what, what are the values Um, How are we going to operate as a group? How do we work in terms of being respectful for each other without squashing that individual flair? And, and of course, it's really difficult. But as long as you keep on coming back to common values and we see the the current day Matildas uh, as a team, it is so obvious that they have worked on cohesion as a team. There's depth and diversity within the team. And their role models, Sam Kerr and Steph Catley, are their leaders, they're inspirational, they lead by example, and the team is just so committed to values and respect of each other, the team, and their supporters. Let's go to this. So what's really fascinating is it was because of Sam Kerr's injury that we were able to pull the lid back and actually have a look at the depth of this team, as you were saying. So it appeared at the start that there seemed to be a reliance on Sam Kerr as the star. Can you comment on this starting point and what we saw externally at least? Well, it was nothing short of horrific for the Australian community with no Sam Kerr and and all the media on that calf injury of hers. And 
I, I'm sure I don't know pers- like the inside workings of the team itself, but um, obviously it, it rocked the team. And those first two games, they were always going to be danger games with Sam. So for the team to actually go out with those really early games, and it is a real credit to the team that they got over that initial um, speed wobbles without Sam and actually because they have the vision, because they have the mission and because they've got the, the depth, we've got young players such as Mary Fowler, Cooney Cross, um, Hunt, Courtney Vine and they, there's such strong mentorship from the experienced players. If we look at Katrina Gorey mentoring Kara Cooney Cross, not having Sam gave the opportunity for Caitlin Ford to step up because she had to step up. And so that reliance that teams often have of the inspirational leader, if you remove the leader and the team can continue forward and are empowered to step up and have the capability to step up, you end up being a much more powerful force when the leader comes back in. You are now um, an executive leader and you're a business coach. There are so many parallels with our workplaces, our leaders, and sometimes our over-reliance on star players. What would you say about what we learnt through these moments with the Matildas that we can apply to our own work lives? The similarities between sport and leadership and team play and business in the workplace are identical, absolutely identical. And... um, if I look at the analogy of, say, our, the Australian coach and the coaching team, they're the global thinkers, the strategy makers, and they're the ones that need to have separateness from the team. And then we've got the captain, Sam Kerr and Steph Catley. They're actually the leader within the team, and they lead by being a role model through actions. And in in business, you've got your executive leadership that need to lead, need to have the strategy and provide the pathway forward. But it's the next level down of the, the team leaders that bring the team along and actually empower and enable members of the team to understand where where they're going and then support them to where they're going. So there are two ways a team can kind of adjust or react to a star player's injury. That's Dr. Alison Crozier. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of South Australia in the area of exercise and sports psychology. The first way is they can really lose that confidence and really feel like they've really lost the game before it's happened. But then the other way, which I like to focus on, the more positive way, is when teams really come together and go, okay, yes, we've lost our star player, but we're all great players together. You know, we all can work together to overcome this challenge. It's a challenge. It's not necessarily a loss. It's a challenge. I'm also really interested in what the star player does when they're or if they are injured, which you can see in NBA or football or in this case, Sam Kerr. So from the sidelines, Kerr Mm. provided a leadership role. 
What is she doing? She's definitely still providing that leadership role from a strategic perspective, likely from a motivational perspective. And while she's not on the field providing that direction during play, she's still providing that kind of mentorship and leadership, you know, during the breaks, before the game, after the game. So I think there's still, even if you aren't on the field or able to do your regular duties, you can still play a leadership role. It's just in a different format. You're not just one star player on a team. You have lots of fantastic players. Um, And if you really work together, and that's, you know, my area of research is about the group dynamics and, and cohesiveness of the group. And so it seems that they are a very cohesive group that trusts each other and really work together to get the outcomes that they have been getting. Can we go deeper on this concept of cohesiveness? What do you mean by that? So cohesiveness is really, it's about the the bonds that exist within the team. And there's two ways. You can have bonds socially, so you can be all friends and and happy and, and like each other, but then you can be cohesive around the task. And so in this case, it's the bond around playing and winning and the game of soccer or, you know, football. So they had a lot of trust in each other around the task at hand. Okay, so let's go deeper on this idea of cohesiveness and trust because it's a short-sighted way of working to rely on your star player. Back in 1989, Phil Jackson was appointed as head coach of the Chicago Bulls in the NBA. So you had a team that had at its centre, you know, an absolute superstar in Michael Jordan. That's Alex Haslam. And I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. And Jackson's observation was that this is great, of course, that we've got this great player on the team. But, you know, a team has to be more than just one player. And in order for us to kind of progress, we've got to have a somewhat different model. Um, And he spent a lot of time, I think it's well documented, with the team, but also with Michael Jordan, talking about like how they were going to be more than just Michael, the Michael Jordan team. And as a result, I think, you know, they, uh, in particular, Michael Jordan changed his orientation to the team and was as focused on building the team as he was on doing well himself. And it was that dynamic that ultimately led them to go on and be so successful. They won three consecutive NBA championships. So, you know, again, it, it became more than just about me. It was about us. And critically, too, you know, Michael Jordan was critical to that transformation, as was Jackson, but so were the whole team. So it was a, a collective effort. Let's pick up on this, moving from a uh, into a we and an us. So what can we draw from the story that you just shared and what we were seeing with the Matildas? A lot of the of, of the focus uh, around the Matildas has been around Sam Kerr. What a linchpin she is for the team, and it's all about you know her as an individual. In some sense, 
I think when you look at the team itself, though, it's very clear that they, you know, that much important as she is for the team, she's not all there is to the team. And and indeed, the first games, well, thus far, she's only paid 10 minutes, but it's clearly about a lot more than her. It is much more about us and how any individual fits into that us, including the superstar Kerr. And, and that, I think, is absolutely critical to their success. And so actually, I think they spend quite a lot of time resisting this I narrative and where it leads because actually I think it's hugely problematic for teams it's actually very problematic for organizations more generally but it's often a challenge to get over it because people want to tell that superstar story. Alex I'm really interested in the importance of we and us when it comes to a team's performance why should we bother? Well I mean the the obvious point is that for a team to perform well Everybody on the team has to be in it psychologically and they have to be part of that collective effort. And part of the problem with a kind of eye thinking or an eye narrative is that it might mean that those people, those individuals who have prominence, the sort of champions in the team, do well and feel good about themselves. But but other people who are positioned more towards the periphery of the team may may struggle with that and they may actually be motivated to say well look if you're so wonderful why don't you just get on with it <laughs> and and i think there's plenty i think there's plenty of evidence and i mean there's sort of classic sort of observation sort of aphorism is that that uh, a champion team will always be a team of champions that at the end of the day you have to be more than just the sum of your individual parts and it's what what that more is and where it comes from is really critical to the team dynamic the group process but also to leadership more generally and and the point i would make there is that leadership is actually always about us I has to be subservient to that. And and if it isn't, then you're never going to get the most out of the group process. And I think there's just mountains of evidence that speaks to that. But nevertheless, the way that we've kind of constructed narratives of leadership in organizations, business more generally, we have this very I focus. We focus on the leader's identity rather than the team identity. And and if those two things aren't in sync, you get suboptimal outcomes. And what happens when, say, athletes identify more strongly with their team? The piece of research that we were talking about here was tracking 18, this was 18 sports teams in Europe, and we were tracking them over a course of a season. And basically what you see there was that leadership in those teams, and this was leadership from everyone in the team, not just like the formal leaders, like the captain and the coach, but the informal leaders, to the extent that that leadership was helping to and focused on building that sense of us, what we refer to as a social identity, a sense of weeness, then that was associated with firstly people feeling more positive about the team and being more motivated to like put in for the team so they did they spent more time training they they were more energized but critically that the two big outcomes and these are the two big outcomes in organizational psychology more generally that was performance the team did better and the, the teams did better and the other was kind of well-being so you got less burnout you got more just enjoyment of the experience and you got more flow you know so Really, the team came together as a team to the extent that leadership was focused on building that, if you like, teamfulness. Um, and again, I, I, I think that that broad trajectory is what you see in all effective teams. Obviously, there's a period of time they have to go through to kind of work out who are we, what is this we thing. But what you see in really good teams is that they they're working at that all the time and they're answering that question collectively. But obviously, leaders have a critical role in helping you to answer that question, if you like. 
What is identity leadership, Alex? Identity leadership is really just a leader's ability and motivation to create, advance, represent and embed a shared sense of us, a sense of social identity in the teams or the groups that they lead. So it's really about seeing your core task as a leader. And again, and using that term leader very generally, not just people who are formally called a leader, but somebody who's interested in the team doing well, and that can be an inform anybody in the team, in fact, that they are motivated to bring everybody on board with that collective project. And to the extent that that's their primary objective and, and that they really zeroed in on that, then you see positive outcomes for the team. Okay, so let's break this down, Alex. I heard four elements there. Tell me about CREATE. Create is about what we call identity entrepreneurship. It's getting that we thing going. It's about it's about getting people to talk about the team and getting them to think we, not just I. And, and so encouraging togetherness and cohesiveness. That's identity entrepreneurship. There's identity prototypicality, which is about representing the team, being one of us, understanding what the team is about and and and, sta- and, and embodying what it's about. So, you know, doing and again, Sam Kerr's a really good example of that. You know, she resists the the sort of superstar narrative in which she looks apart from the team. She is a part of the team always. She's always one of us. She's never standing on the outside as some sort of prima donna. That's absolutely critical. And the third element is identity advancement. You know, at the end of the day, as a leader, you've got to be there, stand up for us, not go off doing some other projects or or looking after your own personal interests. So everything that you do has to show that what matters most to you is the team. Like and yeah, so you're gonna make sacrifices. And again, I think Again, there's lots of examples of the materials. I mean, you know, sometimes you're not going to get the playing time that you want, but you reckon, you know, you're willing to lose that personal outcome in order to get the best result for the team. And then the final thing, the final thing is what we call identity impresarioship is, is embedding a sense of us or making us matter. Again, if you think in your work team at work, impresarioship is around saying, well, look, why don't we have a Christmas party? Or why don't we go on an event? Or maybe we should have the, not do meetings this way, we should do them that way. And the point is that identity impresarioship is creating structures and activities that, that bring people together in meaningful ways and allow them to live out their identity in, in a way that makes it more than just words so they can actually walk the walk of being us and feel good about it. And so what role can this play when it comes to restructures? The structures that leaders come up with are not fit for purpose. So you see that most obviously in and this is some of our research on organizational change, where leaders impose new structures on people that make no sense whatsoever and they destroy valued identities rather than build them. And that's precisely why so much leadership and so much organizational change fails, because it violates and does violence to shared identity rather than emboldens and and, and energizes it. So I think actually the logic of identity is something that binds a whole stack of stuff uh, together and it runs through, I think, all organizational and social life. And unless you're in tune with that, I think you're, broadly speaking, always 
going to get it wrong. And the beautiful thing coming back to something like the Matildas is you say that once you are in tune with that, then everything has a kind of beautiful coming together and you are the best that you can be. Now, that doesn't mean you always win. Unfortunately, seven of the eight teams who are left in this competition are going to lose, you know, are not going to end up holding the cup. But nevertheless, I think they will all come out, or hopefully they will all come out feeling good about themselves and they'll be there to fight another day. And often that's more important than, as it were, just winning the cup. Actually, mm. it's about it's about the endurance. It's about the long distance, the long game um and again i think most of us i think would imagine that on the back of this conference regardless of whether or not they win the matildas are going to be in a better position than they were going into it and that's you know as a leader that's all you can ever i think realistically hope for uh, in this environment, um, many organisations do need to pivot. They do need to do different things lest they uh, become obsolete. So restructures will happen. What is something that can be done or shown in your research to be done around shared identity in the context of these restructures, which some may say are essential to longevity? I mean, firstly, you're absolutely right. Change is a, is a fundamental feature of life and it's necessary. And if we don't change as people, as organizations, then, you know, we're doomed to fail. That's obviously true. But the question then is how do you make that change effective and successful and optimal for the organization, the teams and the individuals in the organization? And I think the, the point there is that you ultimately want to mobilize people's collective energies rather than quash them. Now, the point about change, or all change, and even positive forms of change, like things like going away for, to university or moving to a nicer suburb or something that you might do, or, you know, emigrating to a nicer country, like when I moved to Australia, okay, is that it's always challenging. It's all, and it's all mm. in the short term, it's, it's, all, it's always a bit frightening. So the task there is it, two things. One is is to have some sense of identity continuity, like, okay, so how how am I going to, the, the things that matter to me, how am I going to maintain those? And the other is about identity gain. So how am I going to acquire new positive identities in the place that I'm in? Now, what our research shows very clearly is, is that leadership needs to answer those questions for people. You need to explain to people why they're not just losing an identity, why this is a natural extension of, of, of the identities they already have, and why in the process of making this transition, you're actually going to acquire a new positive identity. So this is, this is an identity migration, if you like, rather than an identity loss. And again, what we have lovely data on is that what you see is, is that the biggest predictor in our models of effective organizational change is leaders' ability and willingness to do that identity entrepreneurship. And this is all through the organization, not just the people at the top, but the people in the middle who, are, who can explain the change to people on the ground and say, and if you don't have that buy-in from those middle level, often informal leaders, most change fails. And you're going to get high turnover, high levels of stress, high burnout, and broadly speaking, disengagement. And it's that disengagement which is ultimately really toxic psychologically. Because again, people will say, yeah, you've got this wonderful plan, mate. Well, why don't you just get on with it? <laughs> Alex, just on the entrepreneurship, can you bring it to life with a specific example of what you mean by entrepreneurship? Okay, I'll give you a good example, a very simple thing. A study that a colleague of mine, Nick Stephens, and I did a few years ago, and we were looking at politics, actually, and we were just looking at the uh, election speeches of the 
candidates, uh, the two main candidates in Australian elections going back to Federation. And at the time, there'd been 43 elections. And what we did was we just went into those election speeches and looked at the number of times that the person who gave the speech used collective pronouns, we, us, and our. And what you saw was that in the speeches of the people who lost the election, they used those collective pronouns once every 128 words, I think it was. But in the speeches of the people who won the election, they used those collective pronouns once every 76 words, I think. So they used it almost twice as often. So they're talking about we, us, and our. They're talking about us a group. They're thinking about us. Thinking about, talking about, engaging with we and us is the lifeblood of organizations. And if you're not doing it as a leader, if you're not thinking team, you're leaving your team behind and then ultimately your leadership is as nothing because leadership requires followership in order for it to be leadership. And ultimately, where does that followership come from? It comes from people buying into the idea of us. And it's that then that your leadership needs to make a case for. Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Matthew Crawford and to producer Zoe Ferguson and our intern Kate Lawrence. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby, and go Matildas. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.